My marriage will atrophy if I don't work on it. My health will atrophy if I don't work on it. My intellectual uh, self will, will atrophy if I don't read books. It's just my relationship with my children. The propensity of life is to push you back down the mountain. A slow fade backwards, yeah. Absolutely. And people, we, if guys can understand that, like if you're going to make your children the center of your marriage, your marriage is going to atrophy. I mean, we just need to understand these things. And so, and as I get older, I'm seeing, I can see the physical results. I can see it physically. I can see uh, my marriage. My marriage was, we had a hard, we've, we had a hard couple years early on. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Mountain Tough Podcast. We are so stoked that you are here and love seeing you all listen to these episodes week after week, month after month. It is our goal to bring you inspiring people and inspiring stories that help you live that Mountain Tough lifestyle and help you live a full and abundant life. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review. The reviews mean so much to us. And the reviews and ratings help get these episodes out to more folks as well. So if you haven't done that, please do. They mean a ton to us, and you can just do that in the podcast store of your choice. There is a ton going on in the lab right now. The lab has a lot of hype. One of the big things is the MGD programs. So we just finished a block in the MGDs called The Mountain which was one of our most difficult mental toughness, minimal gear training blocks that we've done in the MGD community. So if you don't know about the MGDs, that is a minimal gear workout in the Mountain Tough Plus app that releases every 24 hours and expires every 24 hours. So it's a fresh workout every single weekday, and you only have 24 hours to get that workout done. Every month has a different focus. So our next focus block starting right now is the inner athlete month. So adding a ton of mobility and athleticism. So if you are interested in training with minimal gear, the MGDs is a phenomenal community. There's thousands of mountain toughers around the globe that do those workouts on a daily basis and they're fully coached. So we're there with you. The MGD community is with you. You have athletes to look up to and compete with. And it's a great option if you're training at home with minimal gear. Diving into today's guest, today's guest is Jim Ramos. Jim started a ministry called Men in the Arena, and he actually has the number one podcast for Christian men on Spotify. Jim is a phenomenal human and brings a lot of light into today's conversation around the current pulse on men in the country what men are struggling with, what men are going through, and how men can look for different options to improve their life and to improve their family's life as well. This is a very inspirational story focused on men, but it's also a great listen for women as well to understand some of the issues that men are currently going through in today's landscape. It's a story you're not going to want to miss, so stand by as we dive into our conversation with Jim. So what what was the original name again? The Great Hunt for God. The Great Hunt for God. And then you switched it in what year? 2017. Okay. Yeah. So we had a whole organizational reboot kind of because we realized the current path we were on was not going to get us where we were needing to go. And we I was sensing 
a momentum shift negatively. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's a negative momentum shift, you got to do something about it. And so I started looking around and seeing what other guys were doing. And we made a, a huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. We made a shift away from the local church as our target audience. I hate to say that because I love the local church. I attend the local church. I'm a fan of the local church. I think everybody who calls himself a Christian should be in some kind of Christian community. But we realized that the local church was not going to build our platform. We'd have to do our own platform building. So we began a social media campaign. We launched a podcast. We changed our name to something that that gave men and wives a word picture of what we were asking their husbands to do, get out of the bleachers that are anonymous and get into the game, get into the arena. Mm-hmm. Change our name to Men in the Arena because I love that speech by Teddy Roosevelt that you have on your wall. It's amazing. And yeah, and we were we started rolling. We started an online community like you guys have on Facebook, and we jumped to probably I think eleven thousand guys within two years. Yeah, that's amazing. When did the the moment happen where because before that all started, you had been in youth ministry for a long yep. time. What made you make the decision to go? from youth ministry out to serving men specifically. Yeah, so I had a radical call to youth ministry. Like it was a ra- I was playing college football. I was a, a Christian. I'd accepted the Lord about 2 years before. Was not living for Christ. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh was playing uh against my hometown, my hometown, but I was playing for another university against my hometown. And I was a fullback. I scored the game-winning touchdown. Next play uh, randomly made a weird cut, blew out my knee. It was over. Huh. Went in for knee surgery in October of 1985. I'm kind of old, and uh, I got OD'd by the anesthesiologist. So I'm in the ICU for three days. My eyes were swollen shut. I couldn't see. I was blind for three days. I, I had a Paul on Damascus Road experience. I didn't even realize it because I was 19 years old, and I I wasn't had no idea. I had never heard from God. Nothing. And I'm in ICU, and God spoke to me for the very first time. I heard God's voice. It wasn't audible, but it was powerful. And he said, I want you to make a difference in the lives of teens. So I, I went home. I changed my major. I went into psychology. I didn't know what to do. Started uh, driving an hour uh, twice a week to work with autistic kids. Uh, that morphed into working with incarcerated teenagers, and that eventually led to the hardest people group on the planet to reach, suburban upper middle class kids. <laughs> so I end up in youth ministry. Yeah. And so I did that for 22 years. And I went and spoke to a group of men in Colorado in 2010, I think. God really moved in that space. And I thought, I really enjoyed this. And I more than I did working with teenagers. I'm a big guy. I played college football. We just got done working out. Where you um, I did survive. I'm here yep. living proof of survive two workouts. <laughs> Survival. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I would walk into the gym. It drive my wife crazy because guys would be like, hey, bro, how much you been? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I get instant respect, you know, but I walk into a youth group and kids are running from the big, scary guy. Like even at dinner, high-fiving your daughter, she was backpedaling, you know. I'm this big and scary guy, yeah. right? And so, but I walk into a room and that in that space, men really respect me. And I, I thought, okay, well, when I speak, who really responds? And I realized that men respond to me more than teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, well, what do I really like to do? And I go, I like to do manly things. I mean, I like to lift weights. I like to hunt fish. I mean, I, I like the outdoors. I like to hunt. I like to backpack. I mean, I really, you know, I love these things. And I thought, what? All of this happened in a coffee shop after I came back from this Colorado trip. I'm sitting in a coffee shop. I'm looking at some mounted. It was a really cool coffee shop. Mounted bear and elk and salmon, you know, on the wall. And I'm sitting there thinking, 
what really bothers me in life. And I'm really angered by men who call themselves men, but they're just males masquerading as men. And I realized that in youth ministry, my biggest problem was dads that were not engaged. If they were physically present, they weren't emotionally present, or they just weren't there. And it really bothered me. It's like, a, they, it's like a holy discontent almost that the Lord planted in your heart. Yeah, I call it a Popeye moment. Uh-huh. It's a holy discontent. I realized that's all I can stand. I can't stand anymore. But I remember praying this prayer. I remember, well, God, you know, everything that I'm thinking about here and considering points to men, yet you called me to work with teenagers, and I, I had a radical calling to that, and I'm, I'm a finisher. I, I'll, if I have to crawl across the line, I'll do it. I'm, I will. I tend to, like, my biggest flaw in hunting is I sit on a canyon too long. I'm just that guy. I'm just way. I'm. I'm. A, I will just outlast the rest of the guys. My motto in life is: you don't have to be the best. You have to outlast the rest. Four so, low. Yeah, it's just it's, seriously. That's yeah. me, man. Put it in four wheel drive low and just grind it. And so I sat there. I go, you know what, Lord, you've called me here, and I'm not leave. I'm, you know. And I just ha- heard this real slight whisper saying, "Well, I just change your heart." So as soon as I heard that, I'm like, okay, I'm all in. So I began this process uh, that became Men in the Arena. Yeah. Switching from youth to men, and that was right around that 2017 time frame? Well, it was in 2011, and so I went back to the church I was working at. I said, hey, I, I, I try to be a straight shooter. I said, hey, I've got this calling change. Uh, I need to talk to you guys about it. So I met with the board of directors our church they said I said hey I'm a I'm called to work with men that w- that means I will not ever sit second chair in a situation where there's another leader working with men I I'm when you're called to work with men that's a first chair spot so I said I can either replace the pastor when he retires he's getting ready to retire I can go plant a church I don't know what to do but I need to work with men so I got a phone call that night and I was told hey you had a lot of I won't re- tell you the word that was used you had a lot of blank to say that to the board you're fired. Wow. So I got fired. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, I was I, I negotiated a six months until I launched this ministry, but I but I had six months to launch a nonprofit organization targeting the most denigrated people group in America, men, deservedly so. Started writing books for the group of people that only buys thirty percent of books purchased, men. <laughs> I targeted the people group that does not even get 1% of a church's annual budget, men. So I'm kind of the dumbest guy on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it right at the, right at the, at the bottom of a, the, you know, of a, of a recession. But God called me to do it. And my thing is, what I tell people is just say yes. So we launched this thing. And I thought, okay, well, what do I want to call this thing, this thing I'm going to create? And I, I think that men pursue the wrong trophies. I'm a hunter. You're a hunter. A lot of what you do is to get guys ready for, you know, something with a backpack. But it can become an idol for sure. Yeah, and that's what, yeah, and it, and I felt like most guys, you know, God, I believe God has made men for trophies. He's created us to pursue trophies, but the ultimate pursuit is pursuing Jesus Christ. And this is where guys get into trouble. They pursue other trophies. I pursue other trophies. And so we created this ministry, and we decided to call it the Great Hunt for God, initially, because in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 and 14, Paul says, Forgetting what is behind, I press on to the goal of upward calling to Christ Jesus my Lord. And the word he uses there is the Greek word dioko. 
And it's the only hunting word in the Bible. It means to hunt or stalk or pursue, and it's also a kind of a competition word uh, to chase after. It's kind of what I was doing all day yesterday. I was chasing after everybody else. <laughs> anyway. That's an amazing word. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I love that word. Yeah. And so we changed our name, and we're like, we are going to help men pursue the ultimate trophy. And then 2017 came around, and we realized people were calling us evil. You're trying to kill God. You know, is this a hunting thing? Yeah, it's so confusing. We, yeah, we had to pivot. And that's when you switched to men in the arena. Yeah, we had to pivot. So we're still technically the great hunt for God. I mean, if, you know, uh, but we've switched because it was, I, I just have found, and you're, you know, you're an entrepreneur guy. If, if the name doesn't say what you're trying to accomplish in your mission, you probably should change your name. Mm-hmm. You know, Mountain Tough, when I see Mountain, you know, Mountain, Fit, Mountain Tough Fitness Lab, I know exactly what it is. I know exactly when I see the Ibex on the on the brand, I know exactly what it is, you know. And so that's it's important. It is. You don't need a fancy name. You just need to tell it what it is. Yeah. And you guys have been through a lot since then, yeah. obviously, yeah. and you've been keeping it in four low and grinding and but it's paid off. I mean, there's been yeah. substantial fruit and you're now the number one Christian podcast the number one podcast on Spotify for Christian men. Yes. What, looking at it now in 2023, in the fall, you have a better pulse on men than a lot of folks do with everyone that you're talking to and everyone that's reaching out to Mm -hmm. you and your organization. What would you say is going on with men in America right now? What are some of the themes that you're seeing? Well, one of the... So I, let me say this. So when you go out, you're in the middle of uh, elk season right now, but isn't deer season starting pretty soon? Yep. So deer season in Oregon, we're in the middle of deer season. So it, when you're hunting mule deer, you can go out and you can pretty easily kill a forked horn mule deer. That's not hard, but to kill a 28-inch you know, great main beams, you know, 180 class buck. That's different. That's a high mountain buck. He's coming down with the snow. So anybody can kill a little fork and horn. But a a fork and horn, even though genetically is the same genetics as a mule deer, they're different. They're different. A male and a man are different. Genetically, they look the same, but just because you can pee standing up does not make you a man. And so what we, one of the things I've realized early on is men come in all shapes and sizes. Some are round, some are skinny, uh, some are lumberjacks, some are pencil pushers, some are poets, some are some own fitness labs. I mean, guys, but, but a man is as a man does. So that's the first thing I would say is that, you know, what guys will typically look at a guy like you or a guy like me and go, oh, you're that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. No, that's not true because I've seen that some of the most studly looking humans on the planet and they're wimpiest guys in the world when it comes to fathering and children. And so a man is as a man does. So manhood is function over form. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is our society, our culture has vilified men. And I would just argue that no, men are not the problem. Males are the problem. Males are the problem to 90% of the world's issues, but men are the solution. So what we need to do is we need to go and help men, help that little fork and horn mule deer mature into a high mountain muley, right? We need to bring them along in the process. And how are you, how are you defining a, 
a strong man in that scenario. Do you, do you already know the answer to that question? Did you set that up right now? You've been doing some research. So I wrote a book called Strong Men, Dangerous Times. And that book used to be called The Man Card, but I changed the title. But we have defined manhood as five things. And the five things have nothing to do... Uh, I want to preface this. I mean, our organization is a Christian organization. But I believe if it's true, it has to be true across the board. Right? So if it's true, it has to be true across demographics. has to be true across... Um, uh, time. It has to be true across um, where you know where you live, geography. It has to be true. It has to transcend religion even. If it's true, it has to transcend those things. So we went to the drawing board. We said, okay, what is a man? And so we believe that a man is five things. And so if you envision, I mean, this is where I feel like we resonate. If you envision a mountain, so I've written five curriculum books and they're a mountain. The first book is the trailhead. The second book is the climb. Third book is the summit. The fourth book is the descent. And the fifth book is the uh, trails end. That's awesome. So the, that so if you look at man, man, manhood as a mountain, and you look at manhood from the perspective of truth across the board, the first thing is integrity. Men have to protect. Protecting integrity is the foundational principle of manhood. I don't care what you believe. I don't care where you come from. I don't care how rich you are. If you lack integrity, I think it's a little bit different for women. But for men, if you lack integrity, that man will no longer look you in the eye. You, it is foundational to everything that God has called a man to be. And I don't care what you believe. I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you were born. That is true. Yeah. So the second aspect, the second trait of a man is really the climb. And now, I, now I'm a big guy. Gravity loves me when I'm climbing. <laughs> like everything's pushing me down the mountain, right? Everything about Mountain Tough is about helping guys get up the mountain and down the mountain and up the mountain and keep grinding, right? Because there's a resistance pushing you back down the hill, right? I mean, and if you look at like when we're out in the wilderness, you know, you want to protect your feet from blisters, right? Well, how do we get a blister? We get a blister when we, our, our sock fails to resist the friction, yep. and it creates a, a hot spot, turns to a blister, and it becomes a, a nasty deal, right? And pull out the duct tape, right? So we as men have to grind it out. We have to climb against the pressures trying to push us back down this mountain. And there are a lot of them today. Life so, pressures. Yes. So this is what we call fighting apathy. Apathy, I, if I didn't fly out here, I would, I would pull out a knife that I carry. I always carry a pocket knife. I feel like real men carry a pocket knife. <laughs> and I could, I could cut a callus right off my hand. And people would say, oh, that's gross. But I didn't feel a thing because the definition of apathy is the inability to feel. And we have to help men to feel. Feel anger, feel rage, feel hatred, feel something. Just feel for the things that God has called them to care about. And every guy on the planet would agree with that. You can't bottle these things up and have no emotion. No, I mean, you become an eggshell of a man. Numb, almost. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, when I was working on this definition, I was taking a hot tub with another man. <laughs> Happened to be my brother, so it was okay. And uh, we were sitting across in the hot tub, and he's a prison guard. He's a... He's a, you know, a, a Harley Davidson hat guy, Wrangler MWZ. You know, he's got the NASCAR leather jacket with a number going the wrong way. And we're in the hot tub and he's drinking his Coors Light. Because where we come from, it's not called a Coors. Coors. It's called a Coors. He's got his Coors and he's got his uh, 
Clint Eastwood uh, backwoods cigar, right? It's just surreal, right? Yeah. And we're sitting there talking, and I asked him, I said, Tom, I'm going to talk. ask you about something. He doesn't go to church, nothing. I said, uh, do you believe in God? He said, yeah, bro, you know I believe in God. Well, if you believe in him, do you do you think he cares about you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, and I said, he made you. You believe that. You believe he cares about you because nothing is created that's not cared for by the creator. Don't you think that if he created you and he cares about you, he has a plan for you, right? Isn't that what every good creator has does? They have a plan for something? Yes. I said, how can you ever become the man that God has called you to be without radical devotion to God? And he started quiver-lipping. Mm-hmm. And it was then I know I realized that I don't care what a man believes, he can never reach the summit of masculinity without radically pursuing the God who made him. Because they're essentially on the wrong mission. Yeah, they're climbing the wrong mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the other problem is the problem with the self-made man is he worships his creator. Yeah, he's working for the wrong yeah wrong thing. And so I just realized, man, this is true. This is my simple Jim Ramos theology. This is true across the board. I don't care what you believe. That unless you radically give your life, this is the most masculine thing a man can do, is to radically give your life to the God who made you. Only then can you truly realize the true purpose of your life. It is the apex. It is the summit of manhood. And it's intimidating for a lot of men but so rewarding for the men that take that leap and find it because in my experience it's a very intimidating leap Mm. but the the adventure never stops and like the places god takes you are things you can't even imagine before taking that step it's it's um it is a wild ride I mean, I'm a my life verse when I got ordained in 2000 on my cake was John 1010. 10. That's my life verse. 1010 10B. <laughs> I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And I mean, and my wife, when when she's trying to get me to do something like wake surf last summer, <laughs> she'll look over and go, Is this living your full life? And I'm like, I hate you. you know I mean? <laughs> okay, yes. And so because I want to I want it all, man. I want the whole package. I want everything. I don't want to get to a, 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 a what's a, what's the word false summit. I don't want to get to a false summit. I want to go all the way to the top. Mm-hmm. I want to look back at my life when I breathe my last breath and I cross over, and I and I look my Lord and Savior in the eyes. I want Him to know that I gave it all and I was on the right mountain at the summit. Yeah, and life's such a vapor too. I mean, it so fast flies by. Yeah, I like that. I like that analogy a lot of the climbing section because. In our experience as you know, backcountry hunters, you're climbing up to that summit with a really heavy pack, and which is really similar to to like life as a husband and a father, yeah, and uh, an employee or a boss. You're carrying some pretty heavy loads up that mountain sometimes as well. Yeah, and the goal is to get a heavier load. You know, you got a 38 pound pack or whatever you weigh your pack down with. And you're hoping you can add a quarter, hind quarter to it, you know? Yeah. Well, which which is the fourth point, right? So I was in New Mexico with my cousin. We killed uh, two giant mule deer. One scored 223. That's oh. it. Public land, do it yourself. Holy yeah, smokes. I'll tell you the unit offline. <laughs> and and I had killed the day before. I had killed the biggest buck of my life. And we have, we'd packed in. So we got our camps on our backs, got our rifles. 
spotting scopes the whole nine yards and now we've got a buck on the we've got a buck we're splitting the load between this this buck was a 250 pound buck he had a 32 inch neck and i know because i always carry a tape measure <laughs> 32 <laughs> inches around and i remember we're car- coming down this hill and i'm just sliding all over the place i've got a hundred i don't know Big it was over 100 on. pounds of meat and, and gear remember my cousin saying jimmy people call me jimmy jimmy nose over toes nose over toes and so when you have a hundred X pound, you know, hundred and whatever pound pack, the first thing you want to do is lean back. It's safer feeling, but unless you learn lean into the mountain and get perpendicular, that's where you find traction, right? Yeah. And what I have found is these guys get to the summit, is they tend to relax, right? It's like on Mount Everest, most people are killed every year above the death zone, twenty six thousand meters on the descent. They let their guard down. Yeah. And so our fourth point for men is to lead courageously. We have people that are following us down the mountain. You know, we talk about this thing that we can dive into later called the stress bubble. So we target men who are in the stress bubble. These men are 28 to 40 or to 54 years old. The stress bubble is defined as you've got a family now that is dependent on you. You've got a bride that you need to make that marriage strong. You've got your Labrador retriever. You've got your, you've got your mountain tough fitness lab membership on the app. You know, you got all these things that you're responsible for to become your best self. You're juggling. It's, yeah. And that, and that bubble is what you're going to be remembered for. The people who weep for you at your funeral will weep for you based on what you did in that 25 year bubble. And what we, and it's, it's, and more than that bubble from five o'clock to nine o'clock every night, not nine o'clock to five o'clock every day. No, your children and wife could care less about that part. Mm. It's that little window at night. The five to nine is crazy, too, because that is truly the only time we have with our kids for most people, and it goes by. It feels like 20 minutes. Yeah, and you get home, and you're trying to get them to bed. I mean, I've been there. We did it with three boys, but I remember laying on my back, throwing them in the air. I remember getting on the trampoline, jumping around. I mean, I'd get home, and my wife was tired, you know, and Mm. so... And she worked. She had a uh, you know home based business, but hey, it's your time. And so I'd get home. I would cook. I love to cook. I just like to cook. So I would cook. We'd have we'd have dinner and and play with the kids and give her a break and put the kids down, pray with them, you know, read them, read and put them down. And we'd have about an hour her and I. Uh, but it was it's hard. It's it is the stress bubble, and we can't afford to lean back. I mean, we have those moments, right? Like. My wife, I remember she would say, you know what? I don't like your attitude right now. You need to go hunting. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I get that a lot. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. My wife does that a lot where she just knows how the mountain will replenish my yes. soul. So there's definitely times where she's like, you got to go. And it, yeah. it's true for sure. Well, the difference, though, is that we go to refresh our souls. We can't make it an, a trophy. Our, the ultimate trophy is pursuing God. And he gives us these moments, right, that we're passionate about. It could be golf. It could be softball. It could be whatever. But mm-hmm. God, get for us, like, it's that hunting vibe, and it fills our tank. But we've got to be careful to find that balance between filling our tank and making it an idol. Oh, it's a slippery slope. It is. Yeah. A, yeah. It it's, can, especially for men, it seems like you can take it too, too far of an extreme really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We just need to be really aware when we're sliding down the mountain because everybody behind us is caught in that wake and that avalanche. Hmm. So we have to be careful. So we really want to help men, men who are Christian guys. These are guys that have been to the summit, right? These aren't full summit guys. 
want to help them navigate through. And that's really my heartbeat is to help the younger guys because I'm outside the stress bubble now, right? And so I've, I've gone back into the stress bubble to help the guys that are in there and help lead them out, right? And so ultimately, we want to get them to the point where they, my wife and I, I I'm a little morbid. I have, I have one of my dreams of a big funeral. So I've, I've written my own eulogy. I think every man should do it. I read it at least once a year, weeping. And I want to envision what my life will look like when I'm gone and what the people that love me... It gets emotional. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's real, dude. Yeah. What the people who love me the most will say about me at my funeral. And, and the people who will weep for me at my death are those people that were there from five to nine. And my, I hope they're weeping tears of regret that I'm gone and not tears of regret that they never knew their father. Yeah. Right? I don't want my wife reaping tears of regret that she spent 70 years of her of her life with a man who she didn't know. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, that fifth element, and this, I'll be honest with you, of the five, this is the most chip on my shoulder one. <laughs> I'm going to be honest because yeah. I see a lot of quitters out there. Everybody's got an excuse for throwing in the towel. We have no fault divorce, all these things nowadays. You know, everybody's got trauma or abuse and all these things. We throw these words around flippantly. But at the end of the day, am I going to finish my life strong or am I going to finish my life wrong? You know, Jesus died on the cross in John 1930, screaming, it is finished with an exclamation mark. And every Bible I have has an exclamation mark. And if it doesn't, I sharpie one in because I want to go out with an exclamation mark and not a question mark. Yeah. So the fifth principle around quitting is that mostly related to older men kind of retiring and taking it easy or is it just to qu- across the board with like emotionally checking out? That's a really good question. Um, so for me personally on my, most people don't remember what they got on their 13th birthday. Do you, do you remember what you got on your 13th birthday for a present? Yeah. Do you remember? Can you reach back that far? No. I remember what I got. I got the, it's not your fault. We're getting a divorce speech. My parents got a divorce my 13th birthday. And so that, so a divorce is an ending, but it's not a finish. Getting fired from a job is an ending, but not a finish, right? So I want to help guys understand that my stepdad in 2012 on December 21st took a gun that I picked out for him for Christmas, a Remington Model 700 chambered in 270. I just thought that was the best gun out there for the price in the 1980s, right? Yeah. And it's still a real popular gun, right? I mean, the, our military uses a Model 700. In fact, um, Weatherby just built a gun with a 700 platform, right? Or 700 components. Anyway. Very common. Yes. Yeah. And he put it under his chin and blew his head off. So he left with a question mark. And so a lot of these things make me thinking, make me think about, you know, how are we going to finish? So it's it's kind of across the board. People I love who haven't finished strong, uh, people who I've heard about who finished poorly, just across the board, we seem to reward that in our society. We seem to expect that in our society. And I'm just here to push back and say, no, I, I don't I don't accept that. I won't accept that. I won't accept that in my my marriage. I won't accept that with my adult children. I won't accept that. It's just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. We can't. I mean, I can walk out of there like I did crawling in all fours like I did yesterday, literally crawling in all fours. <laughs> but I finished it. And I did not, there was no question that I did it, right? Yeah. And so there's, we don't want to leave anything we do with a question mark. 
So that's part of finishing strong. So we want to finish. And another thing I'll say is I'm a simple guy. So I want to finish my life strong. And I believe I do that by finishing every day strong. Compounded over time equals a strong life finish. These daily habits. Has to be. Micro decisions. Yeah, your mental tough course that I took that from Phil. Yeah. He talked about having principles. Uh, you have your purpose in life. And the second the second class, I, should, I don't want to be a spoiler here, is that you have principles in your life. I was actually listening. I took notes. I have notes. <laughs> but the third is practice, i.e. habits. We have to build habits, and we have to weave them so tightly that nothing can break them. Yeah, it's, it's so true that our life is just this accumulation of these tiny daily habits where it's not these huge, massive decisions. It's not these huge, massive nutrition changes or fitness changes mm -hmm. or spiritual changes that are massive. It's not like we, you need to move and change your whole entire diet 99% of the time. It's just these little tiny tweaks to what you're doing every day, but you got to do them every day and do them consistently. Yeah, dare I say atomic habits. <laughs> yeah. There's a great book out there about yeah. just making small little little habits along the way. And so just doing the I'm pretty new to the Mountain Tough workout. It's probably about two months in now. And I mean, on the first couple of weeks, I was take, sending you, I, I mean, I hate. think I told you I hate you. I think <laughs> I told you you suck. I think I asked for the Valley, uh, valley Tough valley app. Tough, yeah. I mean, I'm like, you know, and, and they're still, I don't want to say the word horrible. They're just brutal. They're so hard. You know, I'm around in the corner. And, I mean, I hate to say it. I'll be, I mean, I'll be around the corner in 60 here in a couple of years. They're hard, right? But I mean... They're getting less painful to think about because I'm actually seeing improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's so. like we talked about this morning. They're always going to be hard. Yes, and that's but okay. They need to be. Yeah, but your your capacity is going to increase, and it's very incremental. And so mm -hmm. we talk about it in the lab all the time, where you're always going to be in a mountain tough workout you're always going to be sweaty and dying and mm -hmm. um, maxed out depending on what, what day and style of workout it is. But it's, it's six months later or a year later where you realize you did six more rounds than you did last year, or you're using a kettlebell twice the size, but it always hurts. Yeah. But your capacity is just way larger, yeah. which is, which is how a lot of life works. Like the amount of stress you can handle is very similar where you, you still might always be stressed out slightly as you build more of like a mental toughness mindset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the burdens on your back are a hundred times larger than they were a few years ago. And so it's kind of just that capacity keeps increasing and increasing. Yeah. That's the secret is to, and is to, well, that we go back to climbing the mountain. The only way you can get stronger is through resistance. You know, I remember we I start, first started this program and Sarah was leading a class and she said, oh yeah, no bands on this. We don't use bands. I was like, wow, really? I mean, I was like grinding out <laughs> one pull up and the ugly looking knees up to my chest pull up. And then we did another workout last week and I got done with the workout and I realized, man, I did 50 chin-ups and I did five, five unbroken 10 rounds. Wow. It's awesome. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a little dude. Yeah. So there's that little, but, but see if, 
in a month away from now, if I don't do anything, I've lost it all. It'll atrophy. Yeah. Right so because the propensity of anything in life is to atrophy. Even with all our mental stuff too, it'll, I mean, you can get really mentally strong and yeah. quit working on it and it'll atrophy just like a muscle almost just as quickly. My marriage will atrophy if I don't work on it. My health will atrophy if I don't work on it. My intellectual uh, self will, will atrophy if I don't read books. It just, my relationship with my children, my relationship with my middle son is atrophying a little bit because I found out I, I can't hunt with him on Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about another commitment, but I'll be there Saturday night. But those things tend, the propensity of life is to push you back down the mountain. A slow fade backwards, yeah. Absolutely. And people, we, if guys can understand that, like if you're going to make your children the center of your marriage, your marriage is going to atrophy. I mean, we just need to understand these things. And so, and as I get older, I'm seeing, I can see the physical results. I can see it physically. I can see uh, my marriage. My marriage was, we had a hard, we've, we had a hard couple years early on. How long have you been married? 31 years, August, last August. So, and we are the best we've ever been, but it was hard early on. We tell people that all you need is Jesus and stubbornness, not in that order. <laughs> and so, but, but just that resistance and fighting for your marriage over time. And we've gotten to this point in our marriage where we refuse to not fight for the marriage. And it's made us a marriage. In my, my opinion, my, my wife might disagree. I think she would agree. I think we have an enviable marriage because we've had to fight for it. But through that resistance, we've become stronger as a couple. What was going on in like the hardest times of your marriage? Oh, it's going to sound so trivial. So my wife, I was a 26-year-old ex-college football player, high school varsity coach, youth pastor, right? College graduate, and my wife married a male. I didn't even realize it. I uh, thought marriage was all about me. And her job was to take... You really want to hear this? Yeah. <laughs> so I remember we went on our honeymoon, which in my book, Strong Men, Dangerous Times, we call it the honeymoon from hell. I married an angel. I woke up with Satan. <laughs> she married her dream guy. She woke up in a nightmare. We hate each other. Man. We just hate each other. I remember we came back from our honeymoon, and I'm like, hey, yay, we're in our apartment. What's for dinner? And she said, I don't cook. What? No. I think there's some top ramen. I'm like... I married a woman who won't cook for me. I'm going to go take a nap. Oh, make sure you pull the pillows off the duvet cover. What's the duvet cover? Oh, it's that fancy cover. Don't sleep on that. It's not for sleeping. And the pillows, pull them off. They're decorative. What? Are you serious? Yeah, use your old college pillow, your crappy one with the stains on it. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm just going to take a shower. Oh, yeah, don't use the brand new towels from a wedding. Guess use your towels. holy towel from college because those are decorative. <laughs> I thought, what did I get into? Everything I thought about marriage being all about me is not. And I hated her for that, right? I mean, it's funny now, but I mean, I actually, I, I prayed prayers about her that I'm ashamed to admit. And then I realized that one, I realized um, a couple years later that I needed to outlove and outserve my wife. I, I realized I'm either, either going to have the worst life, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to divorce, I'm a finisher. I'll just live a horrible life it's that, with a woman I hate. But that selfish nature in all of us comes out. Yeah, and I just thought, okay, I'm gonna, I can either live a life with this woman who I hate, or I can turn it around. But she's a horrible person, right? I, I married Satan, 
apparently. <laughs> and so, but I, I, you know what? I'm going to out love and out serve my wife. I'm going to go all in. I'm going to go all in and I'm going to love her more than she could ever be loved, even if she never loves me again. And it was really interesting. As soon as I started doing that, she began to reciprocate and my angel came back, right? And I realized that in 1995, I was 30 years old. I became a man as a 30-year-old. That was the day I realized that I need to go all in on my marriage. I need to outlove my wife, even if I did not have reciprocation, because I am the leader. And marriage, I believe biblically, marriage is not, not about making a man happy. It's about making a man holy. And I believe biblically, and I can prove this biblically, that marriage is a uphill climb, just like manhood, and it's about resistance. And if you go into marriage realizing, yes, you love that person, I know this is weird, countercultural to American uh, opinion, understandings of marriage, but if I can go into a marriage realizing, even though I love that woman, marriage is a grind, marriage is hard, and marriage is suffering, because suffering, hard things involve suffering. Yeah. But the good thing is on the other side. If I can grind up that mountain... And I can realize I've got to get through these phases. Man, I, you, you can experience the greatest marriage that you've ever had in your life. But you've got to be willing to suffer. You've got to be willing to grind it out. And you've got to be willing to sacrifice. You know, the Bible calls men to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Mm. And I think most men are like I was when I was in my 20s. I wanted to have her give herself up for me. You wanted to be served. Yes, and I had all I had a bass backwards, man. <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit it, but now it's a great story. Mm-hmm. And guys go, "Wow, I'm the same way." Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. Yeah, I think we've tried to apply the same principles in our marriage, my wife and I. And a mentor of ours told us the exact same thing. I'd say, like two years into our marriage, we just celebrated 15 years this August. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. But I agree that, I mean, it's certainly never easy. It's always work, and which I which is okay and awesome because all great things in life are require a lot of suffering yep. for, for you to enjoy it on the back end. And, mm-hmm. But we got the exact same advice two or three years into our marriage of trying to outserve each other. Mm. And... It is the best piece of advice we've ever gotten, hands down. And it it is such a cool like experience when you kind of wrap your head around that in that servant mentality. But it's it's I wish someone would have told me about it at a much younger age because like it's the same principle everywhere in life, like just that servant leadership and mm-hmm. that servant mentality. I was laughing the other day. I put, I, I wrote a, I write an equipping blast that goes out to a lot of people. And uh, I was talking about marriage because I've been processing this marriage thing. I call it my love triangle, God's love triangle. And a lot of it was like, just explained to you. But I, we get married thinking that we're going to ride off into the sunset when really we're riding off into the hot refining fire. <laughs> I mean, it's hot, but it's not a sunset. Mm-hmm. We have to realize, we have to realize that once we get into this marriage thing, but but I think a lot of people nowadays, um, they think living together first is the answer. And statistically, that's the worst thing you can do. But people don't realize that because, oh, we want to make everything smooth and easy, right? And, it, and that's why couples that cohabitate divorce at a higher rate 
is they're taking the easy, the the, the easy road, the road of um, one foot com- in, one yeah, foot compatibility, out. Compatibility, testing the relationship. It's there's a compromise. It's easier, and they they realize they enter into marriage thinking it's about happiness, and it's about joy. But joy only comes. Think about this: when you kill that monster mule deer, you you arrowed that bull this year, you killed that owl dad. There is a joy that comes with it of realizing that I just did something that's going to last for the rest of my life. Like I will never, I will always go back to this moment. Like every animal ever, this is pathetic. Maybe other hunters are as pathetic as me. Every animal I've ever shot, every single one that has a horn, (laughs) I have a piece of blue masking tape on it with a number, the name of the deer and when I killed it and where, because every one of those has a story behind it that God used to bring joy into my life, but it came with a grind. Well, the, the black and white obvious thing that I've experienced and most people have experienced in the hunting scenarios is helpful in painting the picture of how the same thing's happening in all areas of our life. But the hardest, nastiest hunts are the best experiences and the most vivid, long-lasting, joyful memories. Yep. And the the really easy hunt that you didn't have to put any work in is not much of a memory at all. And some of the really, really easy hunts I've had, you actually feel a little sense of shame and guilt, yep. which is really strange. But the, the like, like the searching for mountain goats for 17 days and in three feet of snow and just getting your butt kicked day after day after day and then finally putting all the puzzle pieces together, like the nastier and harder and the more work and effort you have to put in, the better the experience is every time. Yep. And it's like that hunting makes a perfect example of it, but it's the same in fitness, it's the same everywhere. It's the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest satisfaction in life. The greatest stories in life come from the moments that were the most embarrassing. They come from the moments that were the most difficult. My, my son and I, my middle son and I, went in, on a march, a, a mule deer hunt in 2017. And in Oregon, we don't have giant mountains, but we climbed 3,500 feet in elevation gain in six miles. He had a flu the day before. He was sick. He was down. So he's he's hiking with me, and it's a flu, and it started snowing. And we did not, for whatever reason, we didn't know it was going to snow there. I don't know for whatever reason. Probably fail on my part. <laughs> we got up into the hills, and these guys were coming out of the hills on horses going, what are you doing? You're going to die up here. And we're in the snow and two feet of snow, pitching our tent on the ground, building a fire in a tree stump to survive. And my son says, Dad, is it is it bad that I'm not thinking about hunting anymore? I'm just thinking about survival. And I just thought, this is the makings of a good story. Oh, yeah. Another year, I killed the biggest blacktail of my life, and I took a youth group kid with me. I had my brand new Weatherby. I had just bought this gun. And this kid was so, and so we killed this buck, and I had to make a backpack out of his legs, and I carried him back to our spike camp because we had spike camped in. And I get to the spike camp, and this kid's got his eyes wide open. <laughs> What's going on, Trevor? He goes, I lost your gun. He left it over <laughs> He there? didn't know where he left yeah. it. <laughs> he left my, he lost it. He was so jacked up on adrenaline, he lost it. So we packed the, we left the buck in a bay leaf tree because back in where I hunt, bay leaves will keep the mountain lions away. Hung him in a tree, hiked out, came back the next morning, looked all over, finally found that gun. But guess what I named that buck? 
Weather be You know it. You know it. It's a story, right? We have stories from our suffering. Yeah. Right? Suffering builds us into who we are. It does. We we need we require, you know, we rec- we're in a comfort crisis. And we need to we need to realize in every facet of our life if there if we have success, any anything that we do that's worth an achievement involves suffering. Mm-hmm. I, maybe people hate that word suffering. Let's just say it's hard. It's got to be hard. And so we, we just need the pressure yeah. and the adversity. Yes. Can you back up and recap the five principles? So what are the five again? Yeah. So a man is a, a man, manhood is protecting integrity, fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. And based on those five, that definition, and kind of back to the original question, what what's going on with men today in 2023? Yeah, I think because we're confusing... So there's a phrase out there, toxic masculinity. But if you actually look the word masculine up in the dictionary, you realize that toxic masculinity is actually an oxymoron. It's oxymoronic because masculine men, ma- masculinity is doing things that men do. That is not that is not what our culture tells us. So men are getting beat down and they're being told that they can't be this or they're toxic. Uh, you can't try to lead. If you lead your family, it's toxic. If you you know do all these things, it's toxic. But then when you actually unpack this with people who are saying that, and I say I say to people, and I say this all the time. If a guy outloves his wife, is that toxic? No. If a guy is there for his kids' sports, is that toxic? No. If a guy serves in his church, is that toxic? No. If a guy is working hard to provide for his family, is that toxic? No. Well, these are all things masculine men do. But our society is somehow wanting to push men back down the mountain. And I'm a big component, I'm a big proponent, excuse me, of strong women. I, I think the stronger the woman, the stronger the man. I'm married to a strong woman. I, I just am a big fan of strong women. But I, I believe that this message is trying to make men weaker so that weaker women can still be stronger. Hmm. And I'm saying that's going to kill us. We need to make women strong and men strong, and we do that by sharpening each other. And so, you know, in the Bible, there's a verse that says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Have you heard this verse? For sure. So the Hebrew word for... It says sharpens another. The Hebrew word for another is actually the word pene, P-E-N-E, and it literally means face. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man's face. Crazy. And so I want, when people look at my wife, I want them to see a gleam, a sparkle, a fire. I, I want to, I mean, we can start playing Survivor if you want. I want to hear, the, I want the eye of the tiger in my wife. And when people look at me, I want my eyes to look clear and alive and young, no matter how old I am, right? When Moses died, he had the eyes of, as, of his youth, right? And so there's this sharpening that has to happen. But we live in a world that says, no, we don't want to sharpen each other. We want to make each other dull. So if we're all dull and live mediocre lives, we'll all feel like the same. And I just, I'm not a fan of that at all. I think we need to be our best version. And that only comes, like, I was the worst guy yesterday, I was the worst guy in there. Well, maybe not the worst guy, but I was right there at the, with the worst of them. In fact, our team of three, one guy did half of our, our lunges, half of our lunges, right? But guess what that did? That sharpened me. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was a sharpening there. 
And that's what it's all about. It's about one guy being better, sharpening the other guy who's not as good. Yeah. Right? Today on the bench press, I had a good bench press day. There's a sharpening that happens there, right? So there's this thing that happens. And so we need that. For but, sure. But, but our culture is saying, no, everything is even. And I just think that's a bad message. I don't think that we should ever do anything because somebody meets some kind of quota or something. I think we should always ask people, you know, JFK, John F. Kennedy said, a rising tide causes all ships to lift. And and that and that's what I think we need to do as a culture. Let's elevate each other. Yeah. The more the more strong men and women, the better. Absolutely. So I couldn't agree more that men and just the culture in general are going through a difficult generation and there is a lot of external circumstances making it even worse. Mm-hmm. We we know like depression's at a all time record Absolutely. high. Suicide's all time record, anxiety's off the charts. Mm-hmm. And that only counts the people that are re- reporting these issues and yeah. wherever they're collecting this data. So we know we know across the board that culture is very passive and pushed down and, and really struggling. And we're seeing it in all different areas from, you know, alcoholism yeah. to to porn addiction across the board. I think the the Mount Tough community is pretty aware that those things are going on and they're pretty aware on the Mountain Tough principles of we gotta really focus on the six pillars of making sure that we're not falling and in, falling into that trap. So we're working on ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. nutritionally, spiritually, and the community aspect helps a ton too, whether yeah. you're, whether you're in a local community or with us virtually through the mountain tough app. And we get to experience it in like the greatest way ever here in the lab. Cause you know, just as a staff, we walk downstairs every day at noon and go through some sort of adversity together. Yeah. And it's like, like one of the greatest blessings in the world to have that. It's like a, primal caveman environment just like right downstairs and we're very fortunate to have that (laughs) but my question for you is i think all of our listeners know that it's a very challenging current landscape to be a strong man Mm -hmm. what are you seeing for things that are working and help fighting that fight and so like some of the strongest men you can think of in your life or in your community, what is helping them kind of live that abundant life? Oh, that's really good, man. That's a great question. Well, I think that if you look at men and women, women tend to do life face-to-face. If you walk into a room of women, they're all looking at each other. Men, we all do things side-to-side, right? Like even the curl thing today was really awkward He's doing this curls hand the bar to me. I go, this just feels so weird. I mean, if I just want to do something, the, the, the ball throughout the ball things, put me on the side. I don't want to look at your face. Eye to we eye. love to do things side to side. Women do things eye to eye, right? The prop women will default to relationships. Men default to isolation. That is the killer of men. The Bible says that that 
your enemy, the devil, prowls around, 1 Peter 5, 8, like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Okay, in hunting, you killed a bull elk this year. How did you kill that elk? Did you kill that elk in the herd, or did you isolate that elk outside of the herd with cow calls? Isolated. And you killed that elk. Duck hunting, call that, call that elk, call that, that deer down, right? Everything, my son, we're, gonna, we're in the middle of blacktail season in Oregon, and they're in the rut. So I'm going to rattle and grunt a buck into him. I guarantee you I'm going to do it because I just know what happens this time of year right around Halloween. Mm-hmm. So the secret of a predator is isolation. And the problem with men is we have defaulted into isolation. We're staring at our phone scrolling. We're you know, staring at our computer screen. We're alone in our garage. You know, Men will isolate themselves. And that is we have to. I, I cannot stress this enough. We have to f- lock arms with bros. We have to find, I mean, you can tell my voice is changing. We just have to get a community guys. We have to have to. And I would say the more community, I mean, I've been having fun. I mean, I'm in this, this mountain tough community and I'm in the Facebook thing and guys are, you know, a lot of guys, I feel like there's a lot of people in there, my age guys and gals, and they're crying about how hard it is. And they're too old. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) preach it, brother, preach it. But I feel like I've got this little community going on over here. Right. Yeah. And then I can, I can text you and just tell you how much I hate you, but I've got a community going on. Right. And I've got my small group with the, the guys in my ministry and I've got a community. I've got like four or five, I've got a service I lead for men in my town. I've got this community of guys. Right. And so I've got all of these guys around me. I've never had to pay for a professional counselor. I'm not opposed to that at all, at all. But personally, I've got hundreds of counselors because I'm very needy. (laughs) (laughs) But I've locked arms with so many guys. And I'm locking arms now. The beautiful thing now is I've got 20-somethings, and I'm able to lock arms with those guys, right? Because now I relate to them. We're on a friend level Mm -hmm. because they're my adult sons. And so it's been really... So men have to... Get out of isolation. Have to. Like, you have to do it. Get involved in the Mountain Tough community and just interact on there. I mean, do your little sweat. You call it sweat. I call them like sweat angels, you know. Just, just, you know, I'm like, dude, that guy's got a big butt on there, you know. Can make a little comment, talk a little smack. Because one of the things I've also learned since we do life side to side, right? And we do, we, we want, we long for this locking arms and this community. And then you know when you have a community with guys, right? Because Men, the love language of men is smack talk. So true. So yeah. I mean, I mean, I made a comment to you earlier in the week, and I go, man, I hope he doesn't get mad at me about that. And you laugh, and I go, okay, I'm in, man. We're bros now, you know. Smack talk. I mean, talk. smack yeah. talk. Yeah. It's like you know, I don't need you tell me, oh, you got this, Ramos. I need you saying, you get your fat butt up there, you turd. You know, I'm like, oh man, he must like me. He called me a turd. You know. Yeah. But we need this community. We we're desperate for this community, and but men isolate. Man, that this is a really helpful principle. Because I've never thought of it that much of being something to watch out for. First of all, it is pretty incredibly scary to think about the enemy prowling around us like a lion. Like the the just the way that lions can hunt and just knowing that the enemy's trying to take us down at any second and being aware of that is frightening and quite helpful. Just keeping that at the top of our mind all the time. But mm-hmm. but over my adult life, talking about it now, it's very obvious to me that under unique, stressful situations, I isolate all the time. Yeah. But I've never thought of it as being something I shouldn't do and something I should watch out for. So for example, like 
in-laws coming to town for Thanksgiving and Christmas for like 10 years. I'll like hide out in the garage and organize my hunting gear. But (laughs) I just thought that was kind of like a normal man thing to do or like really stressed at work. Then I will isolate in a way where I'm still at work, but I'm just not talking to anyone for a couple of days. So the realizing it as a principle and a, a trait that is dangerous yeah. is pretty eye-opening for me because like I can think of many, many times where stress, fear has caused me to isolate and me just thinking that's a completely normal man thing to do. But from the predator analogy, you can see how that is a very bad idea. Well, you were prowling around the elk herd. What does Satan prowl around? Think Us. about that. He's yeah. prowling around the church. Where are the guys who are straying from the church? Take them out, make them ineffective. The guys straying into their garage. Do you know the highest two days of the year for alcohol consumption? Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because guys like you and me go, oh man, the only way I can handle these people is from some double shots. It's the family. And I'm yeah. not talking about buckshot. <laughs> I mean, you know, and yeah. isolating with alcohol. And so we tend to do that. And so th- these are things that are very unhealthy. So the thing to do when you're feeling that way is to, you know, come out of your office and go, hey man, I, I need I need to talk, you know, grab one of a trusted employee or something, and or maybe somebody who directs, works directly with you and just go, hey, let's talk through this thing. And I, I'm assuming here that you're, you're going to recommend that it's got to be one step further than a virtual community. It, does it? Ha- do you think to really live our fullest life, we have to have a group of real men around us that we can interact with? So it's really interesting. So we have two communities in our ministry. We have local and virtual, and and both are actually very effective. I would let me say this without sounding like I'm hedging. I would rather have a man in a virtual community than no community, period. But there is always something better with a living guy that you can be physically side-to-side, locked arms with, talking smack, reading body language. That's always better. I mean, you can't hunt virtually. I mean, you go out in the mountains and, and something goes south. I mean, you know, there's stuff out. You just need to be in that realm. I would, so I always would say the highest calling of a man would be to lock arms physically. But man, I'm in virtual communities and they are effective, mm-hmm. right? So I, I want to be careful. I'm not saying don't. It's it's either or. I'm saying it's if and, right? So lock arms in a virtual community. I mean, I'm in a couple virtual communities, but you need to have those guys that are in. You know, that are you are. You know talking about uh, Phil's mental tough class. The fifth principle of that, now I added one in my own brain, I added nine. (laughs) He's got eight. I added one for me personally. I needed one more because for me personally, but his fifth principle was people. And the part of being mentally tough is you've got to have your people. You've got to have your people. And if Phil were in the room here, he would say, if you are isolated, you are going to fall prey. Mm -hmm. You will fall prey. Yeah, that's super, the predator analogy is so helpful if we can just remind ourselves of that every day. And he's patient. He doesn't have a one-month one, one month season. Mm. He doesn't have a four-day supply of Mountain House or whatever he's carrying in the mountains. He will wait decades, decades to take you out. Decades. Yeah, we were talking about that this morning with Weston, how you'll see 
a lot of times now in in our age demographic. So Weston and I are both 41. And we were just chatting this morning where you'll see what you assumed was a relatively good marriage in our friend group, and you'll see it disappear overnight. And it's kind of like the things can fall apart at any second if the enemy's prowling around you like a lion. Like it can, we have to be on point at all times, watching and, out. Yeah, and and I would add to that that you, when we talk about having the people around you to lock arms with, you need to have the right people in the right order. In other words, your marriage may look good on Facebook, right? But if you are putting your, this is going to be really countercultural. Some of your leaders, your listeners. If you are putting your children ahead of your wife or ahead of your husband, if your spouse is second to your children, you are out of order and you're heading down a path that's going to lead you to a bad marriage and possibly divorce. Uh, I don't I don't call I don't buy into this narrative that says that my wife is my partner. My wife is not my partner. She's way beyond my partner. My wife and I have way more than a business contract. We have a covenant. So she's way beyond that. She's way more important than my children. And in fact, I had one of my sons, we were heading to an event a couple months ago, and my son said, hey, Dad, if, if you take a bullet me or, for me or Mom, who'd you take a bullet for? I go, oh, your mom, all day long. I would miss you. I'd weep. I would weep at that decision, but your mom is more important to you, to me, than you, because I have your mom forever, and I've made a covenant with your mom. Mm-hmm. With you, God has called me to care for you, but I made a covenant with her. She is my, I have a bumper sticker that says wife is greater than kids on my car. And because I believe it, I believe we have to have the right people in the right priority. Which is, which even when you know that is very difficult to live out at times because kids are so awesome and so much fun. But yeah, me being behind you with the age of my kids, even right now where they're at, so 10 and 11 and 8, yeah. I can easily see now. I couldn't have seen this four or five years ago, but right now I could easily see how a marriage after the kids leave the house would be very, very difficult to reignite if you were focused on the kids more than your wife. But the But if you're not thinking about it and talking about it, I mean, the kids can just take over real fast. Well, I, I told you earlier, I had two different situations where I had men call me who had been married over 30 years to the same woman. One of them called me from a luxury suite in Hawaii. This, he called me whispering. This is a true story. He called me whispering. They had raised three sons. They had got their last one, had just got out of the house. He called me whispering from their suite in Hawaii. I'm alone with my wife in the house. And I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of her. And for, I told you that what I'd recommend. I don't know if I can say it on the podcast, but it involved making love. Okay. Anyway, but I'm just saying, but this is what happens when we get the right people in the wrong order. Mm. It creates disharmony. And the greatest thing that you can ever do, not you, you, you in general, the greatest thing that I can ever do for my children is to love their mother. That is so, there's so much security in that, especially with our girls. Our girls, our girls long for security 
more than boys. I believe girls and boys are different. Mm-hmm. Like it, you know, right? Yeah. And so they long for that security. So when they see the security, knowing that dad, I mean, I was watching your daughters interact with you. I mean, you're a great dad, man. I mean, you're doing it so far, you're doing it really well. But when your daughters see you loving their mother, there's a security in that from they 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 want your mom, your wife to be, they want Lindsay to be the queen and they want to be the princesses. Yeah, and it's got huge impacts, generational impacts. Literally generational. That's wild. Yeah. So I did want to revisit the stress bubble a little bit. Oh, the stress bubble. Because I do believe that primarily most mountain toughers are in that stress bubble. I'd say 80% of the mountain tough community is probably in that yeah. 28 to 44, 28 to 54 range, mostly working professionals married with kids. Mm-hmm. What What's going on in the stress bubble? What should we watch out for? What's going to help us get through it? Okay, so imagine a bubble. I'm, I'm a visual guy. Imagine I'm literally, I blow a bubble up and I have a bubble right here, okay? So that bubble... Couple things are happening with that bubble. First of all, that bubble is being stretched to maximum capacity. So that bubble is stretched. Because of the stretching, there is a thinness about the bubble. So that's so one little one little prick of a needle will cause that bubble to explode. Yeah. So you are in a very precarious position when you are in the bubble. You've got a lot of pressure which is great because, I mean, I work with men. I know this is a mixed audience, but men are really made for pressure. They're, they're sh- they should be able to absorb this. But you have a very thin margin of error, okay? So one of the things that we've seen in the bubble, it's really interesting. So some guys will implode, so just slowly, slowly deflate. That's when you check out? They just check out, and they just are there, but they're not really there. They've just deflated. I've seen other guys, if you take that that balloon and you're holding it here, you're pinching it, I've seen other guys just spin out of control. They're gone. They're physically, where the first guy, he imploded, he's physically present, but not emotionally. That second guy, he's just gone. Yeah, I've seen both those for sure. They're gone. And then you see this other guy, he seems to be doing really good. He's in the bubble, man. We all have pressure in the bubble. Every man, males don't have pressure in the bubble, but men have pressure in the bubble. All of a sudden, you'll see this guy. You were just talking about this guy earlier. All of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion, and the bubble is gone. There's no more bubble. What happened to the bubble? The pressure got to him. Too much. He was unwilling to lock arms, to do life with other people in his community, and it exploded. Then there's this fourth guy. This guy, he does not have air in his balloon. He has helium. And he somehow rises to the top. And so there's this, there's this guy out there, this man, not a male. And he, in the bubble, he rises to the top. He rises above the rest. And True. so that's our goal in our ministry, men in the arena. Our goal is to call men out of the anonymous bleachers into this arena, right? And to watch them rise above the anonymous crowd. And, and guy, I, I saw that with you. This weekend, I saw that with Weston this weekend. I'm like, these are risers, and that's what we want. We want because when you rise, everybody in your community is going to rise with you, right? Mm-hmm. If you explode, you create this popping all around, right? Yeah, because like begets like, birds with feather flock together, right? 
you know, I was down there working out this morning and everybody's ripped and looks awesome. And I'm like, well, that's because birds of a feather flock together. And so we want to create a culture. We change culture when men say, I'm going to move out of isolation. I'm going to lock arms with other people in a community in the stress bubble of life. And I am not going to implode. I'm not going to explode. I'm not going to spin out of control wildly. I am going to tie a knot. I'm going to hang on and I'm going to rise to the top. So would you, would you say, so I got, I have the balloon in the stress bubble scenario and blowing air into that balloon is like first kid blowing more air is like second kid. Yeah. Blowing more air is mortgage. Yep. Blowing more air is truck broke down. Blowing more air is uh, another kid job loss pets so that air is going to always keep coming community support giving back and you do see a lot of times the you know the deflation is really common with guys they're around you see them they you can touch them they talk like they're in your community but they are essentially checked out so not much passion they are spending their evenings at home with their family, but they're watching Netflix the whole time yeah, they're home. Yeah, yeah. And so they've just deflated and just trying to numb the world around them. And then the, 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 the example of helium in, in rising to the top so that we don't deflate, we don't pop and explode and crash and burn or lose it. What, what other principles are going to help us be that helium example? Well, for me, uh, I'm just looking at my life. I think I did pretty good in the bubble. I mean, I still have adult children who love me. I've got a wife who worships the ground I walk on. <laughs> She's in here, so <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I've got a great marriage. <laughs> She's shaking her head in disgust. Anyway, uh, I would say I did pretty good in the bubble. I really would. And I would say for me, uh, I have built a habit over 30 years. And this is, I don't do this because I, I am in ministry. I'm paid. I'm paid to be a Christian, kind of. I'm a paid professional Christian. So I've always had to do things that were beyond my pay that I did because I'm a Christian man. So I, my wife will tell you, I read the Bible every day. I would probably average 6.5 days a week over the course of a year. I mean, I'm very committed to the Bible. I've, that has been my go-to. And I don't read the Bible. I do what it says. So for me personally, reading the Bible, I go to work and I try to pray. I'm, I pray for my ministry. Uh, I, told, I told Sarah today, and I'll tell you that whenever I open that app, instead of cussing at you guys on an MGD, <laughs> I, I'm going to pray for you guys. Yeah, start I'm gonna, praying I'm going to switch it. the narrative, right? <laughs> I said, I'm going to pray for you, Sarah. I'm going to pray for you, you know, because I'm going to switch the narrative. So I'm going to pray. I've been praying. I've got a relationship with God where I, I write down stuff. I'm always taking notes and writing stuff down and, and trying to do what they, the notes say to me because I feel like they're from God. I uh, read my Bible every day. I owe my body four to five workouts a week. I've been doing that since I was 14. Um, that has been very, very helpful for me. So those three things, I get around. I, I'm a, I really believe in community. I'm around people. And so I try to do these things to position myself to be a one percenter. The, the one area I need to work on is my eating habits and my nutrition. That's just been the, it's just been the battle forever. Uh, it just has been the battle. But those four things have been really important to me is uh, in the, over, the, over the years. And I would add, I would also add 
keeping my relationships in the right order. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had them out of order before. And so my wife and I, we determined, because we have a, a, working, a hard work, our, our relationship takes all work, every 10 years we go in for counseling. We just do it. We go in for, to a pastor and we go through counseling. We just pick one every 10 years, a different one, and go in there. Yeah. And for us, we thought married couples get help. So we're just going to get help every 10 years. Even though I spend my life helping couples, we are also doing that. You still got to dig in. Absolutely. Unpack some things. Always. Yeah. With men in the arena and with your personal experience and with your manhood principles, where do you think mental toughness plays in? You know, it's really interesting because I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I live in the Christian world. Everything's spiritual. But if you read Luke 2.52, it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So he grew in wisdom. I was reading in the Bible just this morning where Paul in Philippi, uh, 2 Timothy 4.5 said, Plan on suffering. I mean, and then right right after that, he said, I've been poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. So for me, as I look back on my ministry career and I look at all of the men who are no longer serving and women, uh, women tend to be tougher mentally than men in ministry, I have found. But I have determined that the difference between why I'm still standing others aren't is mental toughness. Mm. I think that in the church we have downplayed mental and physical toughness in the church. And, and I think mental toughness is the line of demarcation that separates the good from the great. I have a life motto, Dustin, and I, it's going to sound funny, but my life motto is you don't have to be the best. You simply have to outlast the rest. And that is all about grit, persistence, stubbornness, a.k.a. mental toughness. So I, I, I personally think mental toughness is the umbrella over the rest. If we don't have mental toughness, it will not, you know, it will not seep into these other areas. It will, seep, it will not seep into spiritual toughness. It will not seep into social toughness. It will not seep into nutritional toughness or spiritual toughness or um, uh, I can't remember the last one we talked, emotional toughness. It, it just, it is, it really is foundational. It's the, yeah, I mean, and the ripple down effect is so obvious. The, the ripple down effect that helps a lot of people understand it, I think mm. that we've used in previous examples is in Montana, there is a very obvious community of crazy, mentally tough ranchers. So these ranchers live out on, you know, these big cattle ranches. They have been getting up at four in the morning for years. And it doesn't matter how cold it is. It doesn't matter how hard the wind is blowing. And you can, like, like droughts don't take these guys down mentally. I'm not talking about financially. Totally. I'm talking about, like, nothing can bring these guys down. You can take them on a hunt and even though they aren't as physically strong as someone, they'll outlast them every time. Mm-hmm. And then you can watch them in their marriages and how it's very common for them to be in the 50, 60, 70 year marriages. Yep. And you'll see this ripple effect of mental toughness. And it's always a helpful example to me of in that farm and ranch community, how they're mentally tough because 
in a way their family history and their job of being out in mm-hmm. these places have made them very mentally tough. But you can easily see the ripple effects across their life on how it's changed a lot of other aspects of their life. And I think we can all create that same scenario for ourselves without being a rancher in the middle of nowhere. But the ripple effects are astonishing. I think that I've been doing a lot of thinking on this lately. This is kind of a, a, I go through these different phases and the phase I'm in right now is trying to suffer. (laughs) I try to suffer regularly. Like I told my sons, we were hunting elk the other day. And I said, I think I should suffer. I'm trying to suffer every day of the week. And my son said, and I said, as I get older, because I'm, I'm shrinking, the tendency is to shrink back from suffering and to shrink into, into move into comfort. Mm. And I don't know if that's an older thing or an American thing, but I, I told my sons, I said, I'm trying to lean into suffering every day of the week. And my oldest son said, Dad, everybody should do that. And I thought, that's a powerful thought. We look at comfort as the, our friend and suffering as the enemy. And I would argue to the death that it's the opposite. The opposite is actually true. And uh, we have to lean into suffering. And that and there's a, and the, there's a mental toughness that goes there. And I have found that maybe you would know this more than me because this is your sweet spot. It seems to me that the mentally tough people are also the emotionally most stable. They seem to be low-key. They seem to be very um, flat-lined. They mm. aren't doing this all the time. They aren't basing their lives on, I'm not motivated. They're just grinding it out. Yeah, we we talk about that a lot. I think the reason you see that with people that have worked on their mindset and and continued to build that mental toughness muscle, the, the reason they most often look more level-headed is because I think that type of training and realizing that you can build mental toughness puts you more in the driver's seat of your emotions rather than your emotions being Mm. in the driver's seat of your life. So trying to flip that switch allow, once you can get into that driver's seat allows less things to kick you out of control. And so it takes much larger things to stress a very mentally tough person out Mm. versus someone who hasn't been focused on that. I find the biggest problem with me personally is the man in the mirror, right? But I find that the less I negotiate, the stronger I become. I've negotiated myself out of a lot of workouts in the <laughs> in my lifetime because I know what's going to happen on those workouts. And I think once once I say this is not a negotiation, I owe my body this, and I need to give my body this. And if I don't negotiate myself out of it, like I'm telling myself. I will do Mountain Tough these days of the week. And if I tell myself that, it doesn't matter what is the workout. <laughs> it doesn't matter that workout. I'm going to do it because that's the day I do the workout. I've taken negotiating out of it. Yeah, that, that principle right there is actually one of the most significant mental toughness hacks that is out there. Oh, really? So negotiation is probably like in the top 10 mindset hacks that can help someone overnight. And the way that it is often described is we negotiate with ourselves all day, every day, but we never win. And so, yes. So for example, if you want to, if you want to change some things in your life and start waking up at 
5 a.m. every day. Maybe that way you can add a Bible study before work and some training. But you're really struggling because you're used to waking up at 8 and 5 sounds like it's going to be very difficult. Usually what is going to happen in that scenario is that the person will set their alarm for 5 and then that snooze negotiation is going to instantly oh. start. So this, which is very common, is it's going to happen to everyone. The snooze negotiation is going on in your head as soon as that first alarm goes off. So the snooze negotiation, you're like, well, I could sleep 10 more minutes. That's not going to kill this plan. Um, or I could get up, but I really think I should sleep 10 more minutes. And so you snooze. So nine out of 10 times, that negotiation with ourselves mm -hmm. is going to be lost. Yep. And so you're never going to win that negotiation. So you have to understand that as soon as you feel a negotiation, a huge buzzer, a huge alarm in your head has to go off. You can't let the negotiation start because yeah. you're doomed if the negotiation yep. is every happen. time. Yeah. But it's a lot of times when people understand that principle, they can start making rapid changes and really the rapid change happens when they put like a negotiation red flag alarm into their thinking so like if the alarm goes off the next day the the second they feel like i could sleep 10 more minutes that negotiation alarm has to go off because mm -hmm. understanding that nine out of ten times you're going to lose is really helpful because then you start trying to eliminate any negotiations out of your thinking. Wow, yeah. Because then it's like, I do this because it's who I am. Mm -hmm. I get up at this time because it's who I am. It's not something I'm, I'm going to talk or think about. It's just something I do. So understanding that if it slips towards the negotiation side, it's not going to happen yep. is, is a pretty helpful mindset shift. Yeah, I agree. It's when I start negotiating, I go, uh oh, I'm done. Yeah. Not yeah. working out today. <laughs> Not ordering a salad today. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It it is really, really interesting. In the the identity philosophy seems to play really closely into the negotiation philosophy from mindset training. Yeah. And so You'll see this a lot with alcohol, where people have a very difficult time negotiating with their, their selves to quit alcohol. So if I'm struggling with drinking too many beers and I want to cut back on drinking beers, then I'm going to have a, a harder time than if I just say I'm not a drinker and I don't drink anymore. Yes. So you'll see people have like 70% more success saying I'm not a drinker I don't drink because I'm not a drinker is their new identity versus I want to have five less beers this week. So the identity tied to the negotiation is kind of like pouring gas on a mental toughness mindset. And so it, it works the same way in all areas of life mm -hmm. from like the physical standpoint, instead of thinking about a workout that you may or may not want to go to or do today, a lot of it is like, well, I'm a grandfather that's going to hunt with my grandkids. Mm -hmm. That's different than just going to train at the gym. So like I could easily miss a training session because it's a training session. Mm -hmm. But if my new identity is 
I am a grandfather that will hike in the backcountry with my grandkids, yeah. then it's a lot harder to skip that workout and fight that negotiation. You know, it's interesting. I've, I'm not a personal coach, so our platform doesn't do that. But I podcast and I, I do a lot of content production. And one of the things that we've spent quite a bit of time on is the three most important questions a person can ask. And the first one is, who am I? Who am I? And that, to me, the, we all have, because I'm not a, I, I'm a chaplain for a university football team. You're not a football player. That's over in a blink of an eye. You're not a, you're not a, you're not this. You're, who are you? And then, so who am I? Why am I here? And then what am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And so those things really, and that's part of that um, mental toughness class is like that purpose. We need to know who we are. You know, am I some fat ogre who just can't wait till I'm retired? Or am I that grandpa who's going to hunt and grind it out with my grandkids? I mean, that is a whole mindset shift because it comes with principles. It comes with practices. It comes with that people. Mm-hmm. It comes with the whole package. So no, that's really powerful stuff. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and having people around that can remind you of it all the time and and things around you that remind you of it all the time, I think is important too because these things can can slip and fade on us yeah. all the time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Well, Jim, thanks for visiting us here in Bozeman. It's It's been amazing. I'm glad yeah, you came it. out. Now you got to fly home in a snowstorm. Uh, hey, it's awesome. I married a flight attendant. That's what we do, man. <laughs> no, I'm excited. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, I look forward to doing more with you know men in the arena, and we we really are proud of what you've done, and I think what you've done for for men in the country is is really inspirational. It's I appreciate awesome. that. 15 guys in a coffee shop to today. So just grind it out. It's everything we're talking about. <laughs> Four low. Grind it out, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Yep. <laughs>